We begin tonight with the hotly contested race for San Francisco's next district attorney. Tonight, Chase Boudin leads Susie Loftus by more than 2,400 votes, with only 1,200 left to be counted. Those numbers prompted Loftus to concede the race. Hey everyone, this is Rochette over at Newsbeat. So I want to give you a brief update regarding our recent episode about restorative justice. One of our guests on that show, Chase Boudin, actually came out on top in the district attorney's race in San Francisco. It was a huge accomplishment for him and the broader criminal justice reform movement. I know that there's a lot of distrust between San Francisco communities and law enforcement. And my first job is going to be to roll up my sleeves to work with everybody, all stakeholders, all communities, and make sure we can rebuild that trust so that we're all safer. Boudin is among a number of DA candidates running on a progressive or reform platform. And his win signals that that movement is as strong as ever. That Boudin won is even more significant considering that his closest competitor, Susie Loftus, was recently appointed interim DA by the mayor of San Francisco just weeks before the election. Now, Boudin's supporters were outraged. They said the appointment gave Loftus an unfair advantage as she was able to run as an incumbent. Well, Boudin eked out a close victory, and now he'll be able to institute some of the reforms that he campaigned on. The central theme of Boudin's campaign was putting victims first. And to accomplish that, he spent a great deal of time talking about restorative justice as not only an alternative to incarceration, but a way of empowering victims, actually giving them a choice about how to move forward and allowing them to define justice in their own terms. Boudin credits restorative justice with helping him heal from the trauma that he suffered as a result of his parents' incarceration. What you heard from Boudin in our restorative justice episode was only a small portion of our interview with him. So in response to his victory, here's more from our conversation with Boudin, the now DA-elect in San Francisco. Oh, and always, please subscribe to Newsbeat wherever you get podcasts, and remember to leave a rating and review while you're there. Now, here's the rest from our conversation with Chase Boudin. It's important to remember that part of what mass incarceration means is that the majority of American adults have an immediate family member who is currently or formerly incarcerated. So my experience of visiting my parents in prison, of having loved ones behind bars, actually puts me firmly in the majority of this country. It's a real problem that so few district attorneys share that experience with the majority of Americans because it makes it harder for them to have empathy and compassion, to see people as three-dimensional, complex humans who have made, in some cases, horrific mistakes, in some cases, repeatedly but who are more than their worst mistakes and who have potential for redemption and to play a role, not only in their own salvation, but in helping undo the harm that they've caused in their communities. Now, my experience with parents in prison is just one part of what sets me uh, apart from most traditional district attorney candidates and the other district attorney candidates in my race. As a public defender, I'm the only person in this race or in most district attorney races who has actually advised someone accused of a crime to plead guilty who's had that conversation about what it means, about what they've done, what their rights are, and what the choices ahead of them are, and why it might make sense to waive those rights, take responsibility, even in the face of potential long prison sentences. I'm also the only person who's ever represented someone who's wrongly accused of a crime, who's factually innocent, but facing the prospect of waiving their rights and saying they're guilty simply because they're too poor to pay bail. Those kinds of perspectives, loved ones behind bars, innocent clients, guilty clients, working with victims whose only contact with the district attorney's office is a subpoena in the mail, 
Years and years of those experiences have given me unique perspective that I hope will help us transform San Francisco's district attorney's office into a leader in reimagining this country's approach to criminal justice, where we focus on preventing crime and healing the harm that it's caused, not just punishing the people who've committed it. We know that the tough on crime era was a failure. It was a failure in terms of the cost in California. Nearly 10% of the state budget goes to the Department of Corrections. That doesn't even count local policing or jails. We also know that two thirds of the people getting out of prison will be reincarcerated within a couple of years. So it's not rehabilitating, it's not breaking this cycle. And we also know that most victims are profoundly dissatisfied with the way they've been treated by the criminal justice system and with the outcomes. In San Francisco in particular, 75% of people arrested are drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. Most victims want people to get treatment and know that treatment in jail is not effective. But instead of preventing crime by providing universal mental health care and meaningful interventions in the lives of people on our streets, we simply wait for crimes to be committed that are serious enough, where a victim is harmed badly enough that we can send someone to prison or keep them in jail for a long period of time. That's why San Francisco's jail has become the number one provider of mental health services in San Francisco. It's a disgrace, it's disrespectful to victims, and it's inhumane in terms of our approach to people who are living in crisis. So we need to take a different approach and restorative justice is a key part of that because it puts victims first. It's not about just letting people who cause harm off without consequences. It's about recognizing that there's an intersection between accountability and healing, which our traditional narrow focus on punishment misses entirely. And I think it's really critical that we move away from this false narrative that's been perpetuated over decades that victims' rights are equated with longer prison sentences or higher conviction rates. We know that does not make us safer and we know it does far too little for victims who live with trauma and stigma and shame as a result of what they've experienced. So for me, today and every day, when we talk about restorative justice, yes, we know that it's gonna help end mass incarceration. Yes, we know it's gonna help reduce racial disparities. Yes, we know it's gonna be a more effective way to spend tax dollars. But first and foremost, this is about victims and giving them a voice and making sure that we are dedicating our resources and our energy to healing and empowering them. All right, this is Rochette again. So a special thanks to Chase Boudin for speaking to us during his busy campaign season. We also thought we'd bring along our editor, Chris, to share a few thoughts about restorative justice, that episode in particular. So Chris, uh, what were some of your takeaways? So uh, what would you tell listeners? Yeah, well, for me, it was restorative justice as this lesser known alternative to mass incarceration and its ability to actually give crime victims a voice you know, in the vast majority of cases within our criminal justice system, imprisonment is just simply the given. You know, somebody commits a crime, is convicted, and is locked up. End of story. Well, that's not really the end of the story. More accurately, it's the beginning, really, of this world of hurt for the victims and their families, in addition to the families of those who are locked away. It's sort of this ripple effect of pain which never really addresses the psychological, emotional, or physical damage rendered 
nor the healing process at all. So a lot of this anguish remains unresolved and rarely are the actual victims of those crimes given any say in what happens to their perpetrators or what type of punishment they, as victims, believe is fitting. So restorative justice grants them that voice and consequently sort of kickstarts that healing. I think another really interesting thing discussed in the episode is Chesa Boudin's upbringing and how it impacts the prospect of reforms his election makes possible. Just a really very, very moving story. I'll suggest you listen to Boudin explain it in his own words in the episode. But here we have a district attorney who actually experienced the incredibly heavy and incredulously underreported toll incarceration takes on family members of those convicted. The guilt, the remorse, the pain, and all the boundless other emotions experienced when someone you love has committed a heinous act and is imprisoned. On top of that, imagining the torture, you know, experienced firsthand by the victims of violent crimes. There are no winners, just this endless cycle of pain. Restorative justice is a meaningful attempt at addressing this. That's great, Chris. And uh, as Chase Boudin told us when we spoke with him that if elected, that uh, restorative justice would be a process. He's, you know, he's going to implement it, see how it goes and see how it's working for the victims. So it'll be interesting to see how that all works out. So that'll do it for this bonus episode. Uh, To listen to the entire aforementioned episode called Restorative Justice Healing Instead of Incarceration, head over to your favorite podcast app and download the show. Along with Boudin, the episode featured Danielle Serrid. She's the executive director of the nonprofit Common Justice and the author of Until We Reckon, Violence, Mass Incarceration, and A Road to Repair. She was also joined by Rachel Barkow, professor at New York University School of Law and faculty director of the Center on Administration of Criminal Law, as well as the author of the book Prisoner of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. As always, we highlight extraordinary performances from independent hip-hop artists, so this episode includes a contribution from Brooklyn's own Napoleon the Legend. Remember, you can head over to usnewsbeat.com to check out more content and to support the podcast and the artists who appear on each and every episode. Once again, guys, thanks for listening. We will not end mass incarceration unless we take on the question of violence. More than half of people in America are locked up for crimes of violence. That means we're not getting a reduction by more than half by ignoring more than half of the people there. You don't have to be a statistician to know that. But the deeper part about that is the role violence plays in our cultural addiction to prison. We don't choose prisons over roads and prisons over hospitals and prisons over schools because we're concerned about somebody who repeatedly shoplifts. We do that because we've been told this story of some imagined monstrous other, somebody who is lacking in empathy, who is so different from us, so incapable of the kind of human decency and compassion that we know characterizes us and our families, that we have to be protected from that person at any cost and by the state. That story is not new. It is as old as this country and it is as racist as this country. And by that, I mean it has always been a story about black and brown people. United States, where they incarcerate at the highest rates. You made the whole populace afraid. Gotta keep them safe since the age of slaves, inmates inside a cage. Families destroyed, adding fuel to the...